0: taking
1: it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Kay Winningall and I'm joined today by my co-host Michael
0: Good day, everyone, thanks for joining us again and Nat's still on holidays if you're wondering why she's not here.
1: There is and has been a lot of research done worldwide on the development of solar cells, and especially in the development of organic solar films called OPVs, organic photovoltaics. And we've talked about them before. Now the claim is that they have multiple integration options, customizable, low carbon footprint, and a low amount of raw materials. So to find out more about this today, we're going to speak to Kira Brundle. She's a PhD student at Monash University and just about finished her PhD, and she's in the Department of Materials Science and Engineering. Hi, Kira. Thanks for joining us. Hello.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Firstly, Kira, I just mentioned that you've just about finished your PhD. How far into it are you?
2: Yes. um, So I just surpassed the three-year mark. Um, In Australia, a PhD takes around three to three and a half years, so I should be finishing up by February. Whoa, very close. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so, tell us what you got. What got you into researching IPVs, or getting photovoltaics?
2: Yeah. So that actually can be traced back to where I grew up. I grew up in the desert of Arizona in the southwest of the U.S. and we have one of the richest solar resources in the world. And so I grew up thinking, how beautiful is this environment? These cacti surrounding me, and how beautiful is the sky and the sun? And why aren't we using this? natural resource that is given to us every day. Unfortunately, Arizona is not really a front runner when it comes to renewable energy deployment, but I was hoping that if I can go out and gain a lot of experience, maybe I could bring some of that back with me. (laughs) Oh, good on
1: you. So we have had previous shows on IPVs, and we understand that the field has changed dramatically in the last two years. Can you tell us now what an IPV consists of and how it works?
2: Yeah, so conventionally when we talked about organic photovoltaic systems, what we had was a polymer donor material that was paired with a fullerene-based acceptor material. There are a couple of prob- problems with fullerenes. One of them is that you don't have the ability to modify the chemistry of a fullerene. So when I say fullerene, I mean a Buckminster fullerene that's a carbon-60 ball. There's not really a lot that you can change about that. And so we really were designing polymers to be used with fullerene. But when we replace the fullerene with another organic material that we do have control over the design of, we can design two materials dependently on each other instead of just designing one around a fixed material. And this enables us to get better solar cell performance. So higher open circuit voltage and potentially better microstructure that will lead to higher current as well.
0: And that's what your research has been into, is these other materials.
2: That's right, yes. So I have spent the last three years researching potential new, what we call small molecule acceptor materials. So this is somewhere in between a fullerene and a polymer. So we have this complex material, but it's not a re- repeating on a chain like a polymer would. It's more of a one structure on its own.
1: So when you look at the difference between a normal photovoltaic cell compared to an OPV, an organic photovoltaic cell... Is it just the fact that it's a um, a polymer that the difference?
2: There's actually a lot of differences. So what we call the active layer, which is where the light is absorbed, that is certainly a difference. So in silicon, you have a very crystalline material um, of silicon. Mostly, we have what we call a heterojunction blend. So we have a polymer and our small molecule mixed together in a solution and then that's deposited. Gives us actually a very amorphous structure compared to silicon. So along the entire line of how these devices work, they're very different to how silicon-based devices work. Sandwiching the active layer we have transporting materials. So we have an electron transport layer and a hole transport layer that give selectivity to our contacts. So silicon separates charges by having an internal electric field that kind of drives electrons in one direction and holes in another. We develop that by incorporating these interlayers that give selectivity to the contacts.
1: Um, Is that because they don't transmit that, that voltage very easily?
2: It's mostly because you just don't have this um, internal electric field inherently arising in our materials, and so the charges really don't know where to go. And so mm. you have to have, on one side, you have to say, no, only electrons can go in this direction. On the other side, only holes can go through. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the um, limitations of radio are here. Kira's drawing us beautiful diagrams with her hands.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> sorry. sorry. <laughs> Well, maybe if we talk about how they're manufactured, how they're made. Yeah, sure. How how are they made? So the really exciting thing
2: about organics is this potential to be solution processable. Um, And that basically means that you can dissolve the polymer and the small molecule together in a solution um, that can then be coated onto a substrate using coating techniques such as printing so roll-to-roll processing onto flexible substrates for example so that's something that makes them very unique compared to silicon-based solar cells
0: and yeah that's one of the huge advantages isn't it that you can have this flexible service roll out the solar cells and um, all the advantages in cost and and where you can mount them which we're going to come to the the Question that I'm sure is jumping straight to our listeners' minds is where's the efficiency story at? We know that current silicon cells, the ones actually being commercially installed, are somewhere at, what close to 20% now mm-hmm. for typical ones, uh, slightly over for the more expensive ones. What's the story? With, I, I know it's early days; it's not commercial. But <laughs> well, there we, are actually what, some commercial yeah, applications yeah, but, already. Mm-hmm. But the sort of efficiencies you're getting in the lab are, mm-hmm. um, double the commercial efficiency. What, what's the story with it?
2: Yes. Okay. So the reason why I say there's been a lot of progress in the past two years as we've moved away from fullerene acceptors is because we've been able to develop new small molecule acceptors that have given us much higher efficiencies. So, for example, a few years ago, OPV had plateaued around about 10% for several years and in the past 2 years with these new materials that we've developed we're actually now over 14% in single junction lab-based devices and when we build two devices on top of each other to try to absorb more of the solar spectrum that's what we call a tandem device we're able to get over 17%. So that 17% number is a bit more comparable with current mm-hmm. silicon technology. Oh, that's
1: pretty impressive. But that's isn't in that?
0: laboratory demonstrations. That's what, a tiny yes. little cell.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: But you've got to start there.
1: Mm, Exactly.
0: And coming to the the sort of research you've been doing, we're reading that one of the ways the performance can be improved is effectively putting the junction upside down or inverted. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, okay. So that kind of just very basically gets back to those layers I was talking about earlier. So we have control over which um, layers we deposit in what order. So in a conventional solar cell we would deposit the whole transporting layer first then the active layer and then the electron transporting layer on top and in an inverted device we're just swapping those so we have the electron transport layer
0: and how does that help
2: it helps because of the um, stability of the devices so if we use a conventional structure we use aluminum as the top electrode aluminum doesn't have very good stability though and so likes to
0: oxidize exactly
2: Yeah. And so if we um, change the direction that the charges move in, we can actually use silver as our top
1: electrode, and that's much more stable.
0: And that stability has been one of the main problems of OPVs, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that
1: they, they... Well, let's get on to that. We're talking about the temperatures that the, these products operate in, say, compared to silicon-based products. What is the difference there?
2: Yeah, okay, so um, your listeners are probably aware that uh, as you increase the temperature of a silicon solar cell.
1: The, the temperature e- coefficient. The, the,
2: is- yeah, exactly. Because of the temperature coefficient, the efficiency decreases. That's not necessarily true for organics, and it's been shown several times that up to temperatures of around 60 degrees Celsius cell temperature, you can have very steady energy output for an organic device. The problem, though, with higher temperatures, higher than 60 degrees is that the materials are then uh, given enough energy in the system to actually change their morphology. Normally, you need temperatures above 100 degrees to do this, but it's been shown that sometimes for some materials, 60 degrees is enough. And unfortunately, that's irrevocable damage. So
0: So you're talking about this morphology and the structure. How are you actually looking at this? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> have you yeah. bought the, the synchrotron or something?
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah, that gets into really what the research that my PhD group focuses on. So we rely very heavily on the Australian synchrotron and a couple other light sources around the world to do our materials characterization. So the problem is that we are dealing with highly amorphous material systems that have their Features on nanometer length scales. So we can't use your typical benchtop x ray diffraction. Methods to characterize the morphology. Because
0: it's not regular enough.
2: Exactly, yeah. You wouldn't have enough diffraction off the material to be able to get any uh, meaningful information out of that. Mm -hmm. So we rely on the synchrotron and we use a couple of different techniques to basically tell us how intermixed are our two materials, so the polymer and the small molecule, and what orientation do they have with respect to the substrate surface. And all of these things play a really critical role in how efficiently the device is able to operate.
0: And you're using this ability to look at these materials to try different variations of it and and see what the results are.
2: Yeah, and actually the variations are not just material-specific. We can actually influence the morphology of the same material by changing the processing of that material. So if we use different solvents... We can get different orientations. If we anneal the material at high temperatures, sometimes that's beneficial, sometimes it's not. So we measure a bunch of different samples and all of these different processing techniques to try to optimize our specific system. Mm -hmm.
1: So how thin is this film?
2: Yeah, so the exciting thing about organics is that they can be very thin because they have a very high absorption coefficient. So that basically means when you think of a silicon solar cell, the actual cell itself is on the order of uh, microns thick, so 10 to the minus 6 meters. Our materials are around 100 nanometers thick, so orders of magnitude thinner than Mm -hmm. silicon. And this actually enables us to make partially transparent films because they don't have to be very thick to be able to absorb the same number of photons.
1: So you can use them in applications like windows and buildings. Yeah,
2: exactly. I think that's the idea. That's
0: one of the most (laughs) exciting things about the AVVs.
1: Yeah. You can do a whole building wrap. You can do the walls and the windows.
2: Yeah, you can tint your car with solar films instead of plastic films. Um, There's a lot of really exciting applications.
1: What happens when you – what's the conductivity layer then? What's that made of? So we can actually sputter. It's a it's another deposition technique, a
2: soluble version of, say, silver, if you want to use that as your electrode material. So there's ways to get around having to use high temperatures to deposit this material. Kira, I've,
0: I've got a really dumb question <laughs> that I've never understood about OPVs. I, I look at your typical silicon solar cells that on the rooftops, and they've got all these arrays of cells with interconnecting circuitry, just like a a circuit board. You're talking about printing these things, layers of ink. Mm -hmm. Do you have to also print interconnecting between these things? or You can't just have two big layers and expect to get a heap of volts out of that.
2: Exactly, yes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So that's what goes more into what I was saying, that we have methods to solubilize the electrode materials as well. And so you really just... You print your active layer, your electron and hole transporting layers, and then the last kind of layer would be the electrodes. Okay.
1: If you've just tuned in, we're talking about the latest in OPVs, organic photovoltaics, with Kira Rundle, who's a PhD student at Monash University. Kira, just on the the material, it's not cheap, is it? Is it like titanium oxide or fullerene? I'd imagine, would be cheaper?
2: Yeah, so at the moment, we're just synthesizing very small batches of material. Um, The reason for that is that we haven't found our optimum material system yet. And so there's still a lot of experimentation going on. There's a lot of manpower behind producing so many raw materials. I believe once we get up to the level of commercialization, where we'll be synthesizing very large quantities of the given materials, the cost for doing so will decrease dramatically.
1: I think I mentioned this before, about the, and you talked about the temperature range that these cells do operate in. If you're putting them on buildings on a, a vertical wall rather than a, a horizontal surface, I'd imagine then you could control that 60 degrees or whatever it is that they start breaking down. Does that mean that they can be nearly as efficient as standard silicon cells?
0: And closely related, it, what sort of temperature coefficient do they have, is it?
1: Yeah, so
2: the the dependence on temperature or the relationship between t- temperature and efficiency between organic photovoltaics compared to silicon is definitely not as strong. So in silicon, you see That's this... That's a good w- thing? It's a very good thing, yeah. yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you see the um, intense efficiency decrease in silicon with increasing temperature, and we don't see that same correlation in our OPV devices. Conversely, silicon is also very sensitive to light intensity. Mm-hmm. So... That's why we always want to have silicon solar cells on rooftops where they are susceptible to direct sunlight. The organics because they have a high absorption coefficient don't necessarily need that. And so what you can do is you can actually install organic photovoltaics inside a building and recycle ambient light coming out of, oh. you know, the ceiling for yeah. example, wow. and they'll still absorb quite a large amount of those photons. So that's another exciting feature of these materials as well.
1: Wow, that's amazing. So
0: this is where it's not worth putting silicon, say, on the south of the roof, but if these things become economical enough, you could just roll out blankets of um, OPVs on the south of your roof.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. I would love to see that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we've discussed the main disadvantages of the OPVs being the low efficiency, the low stability, and the low strength Mm. that they have. So... What makes them a good product to have on buildings?
2: (laughs) Well, they are optically partially transparent like i mentioned earlier so you can actually incorporate them in ways that you can't incorporate silicon and um, you can get
0: colored versions you of can of get of colored it. versions yeah, yeah exactly <laughs>
2: this exactly so the main solar materials are based off of dye molecules which means that we know how to modify the chemistry to give us certain colors so you can essentially make a solar cell that has all the colors of the rainbow and so aesthetically this is very appealing to architects and so there's a potential for these materials to be integrated into buildings in the future.
1: So the way they're integrated helps solve that issue, those issues.
2: Yeah, exactly. And another benefit would be that the cost for producing these materials is projected to be significantly lower than silicon. Oh, really? Yeah, just because, I mean, silicon needs to be processed at extremely high temperatures, above 1,400 degrees Celsius, okay. and we do our printing at room temperature. So that alone... Mm-hmm. has much less inherent cost and energy to producing the device. So if
0: you got down to 50% of the cost of silicon and area wasn't a problem, then you're a winner. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, there'll always be situations where, with the roofs, for example, where you, you want to get as much efficiency as you can because there's not much roof area. But if you're putting walls of buildings and stuff, it's a different.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Have they been out there long enough to, to really get an idea of the long-term performance?
2: There have been a few trials. Germany really is a leader in the development of this. (laughs) right? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there have been a few trials where they've left these and they've used these types of prototype OPVs to power, say, lamps on the side of the road and they've left them out for about five years and they were still operating at the same efficiency or just slightly below, which is very impressive to me. Everyone always talks about this 15% efficiency, 10-year lifetime is kind of the golden rule for OPV to be commercially viable, and it seems like we're getting quite close to that. So it's exciting.
1: And I saw a a few illustrations of buildings, some pretty amazing architectural-style buildings that they've built over in Europe as well, where where they've actually employed this technology. I presume they're only a few years old, though. Yes, I Mm. think so, Mm. yes. How
2: do they
0: connect together? You've, You've got these, like, particularly a window or something... Yeah. (laughs) How does it work?
2: Yeah, so you've got basically needles. So if you think of what a silicon solar cell looks like, you have the cell itself, and then you have all these fingers coming out to collect charges uh, throughout the bulk of the film. You can imagine they would look quite similar to that. Now, if Mm. you wanted transparency because of windows you can use what's called a transparent conductive oxide as the electrode, and this isn't as efficient as using metal as the conducting mm. material, but it, it can work, and then you well, retain you, the transparency. Anything's better than and, nothing, isn't exactly, it? That's right.
0: <laughs> and then at the edge of the panel, to connect mm. the various panels together, to get the power out of them, they just have a little connector on the corner or something?
2: Yeah, it's similar to how you connect silicon cells together in yep. series and parallel. How environmentally friendly are they? That's a really good question. So in terms of the inherent energy that goes into a cell, vary. The energy payback time of a silicon solar cell can be anywhere from one to three years, depending on the solar resource where it's installed. Mm -hmm. These materials have been shown to have energy payback times as low as one day. So that means the inherent energy, you stick into producing it, you get back out within one day, potentially. So that's good. There Uh are some problems. For example, the solvents that we use at the moment. So we're using organic solvents to dissolve our polymers into a solution. And these are not very environmentally friendly. So there are definitely chemists working on developing materials that are soluble in water, and that would get rid of that problem.
0: I'd like to think, given that they're carbon-based, we're sequestering carbon. But in, <laughs> in fact, <laughs> it's, it's a minute amount of material, isn't it? it um, I think Two examples that I read were a gram per square metre or uh, your example he gave us before the show of a kilogram will cover a whole football field of, yeah, of cells. that's right. Yeah. So and we don't actually get to uh, sequester
2: much carbon.
1: Unfortunately <laughs> not, no. A kilogram for a whole football field.
2: Exactly. That's, that's how amazing. small a nanometer is. It's
1: very, very amazing. Yeah. So what about the – you talked a bit about the expected lifetime – And the end-of-life treatment, what do you do with them?
2: Yes, so there have been a couple of trials over the past few years to try to see how efficiently you could recycle these materials. So obviously if we're doing a flexible solar cell, you're going to be printing onto a plastic film. I'm definitely not an expert in this area, but I know that there have been trials done to see how easily recyclable the materials would be, and several people have concluded that they are recyclable. But beyond that, I I don't know what the status of that is at the moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I think
0: back to an earlier question. I think we actually distracted you when we were talking about the advantages. <laughs> and there's the weight, obviously. That, yes. Um It's five percent or something of a silicon panel. Yeah. There's the the low materials cost, the, the the low production cost, and and looking at the ideal here where these efficiencies become commercial. Mm-hmm. Um. I've already forgotten the other things. <laughs> Can
1: you flexibility?
0: Yep. So and transparency, transparency. transparency yeah, uh, have we missed out other things? Have and and the you?
2: temperature, <laughs> the t- yeah, yeah. So the the oh, temperature the coefficient, The yeah. temperature a really coefficient.
0: Yeah. Because silicon, say our rooftop panels, they rate them at twenty five degrees. If you're at twenty eight degrees, because of the racking, I believe that they have to be calculated at about 50 or 60 degrees and that is actually a 15% decrease in efficiency. Yeah. And the OPVs aren't going to suffer anything like that.
2: That's right, yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Can you retrofit a building with these materials? So the idea is that you would make um, a solar film similar to the film that you coat your car windows with as the tinting film. And so in that case, you can retrofit your car with tinting film and so i believe yeah you could retrofit a, you could building. Do a building as well
1: yeah, yeah it, you could do anything really yeah i
2: think yeah. so absolutely any surface at all yep
1: which makes it far more flexible than a standard solar cell doesn't it
2: yeah and the other um benefit to having a solar film as opposed to a heavy solar module mounted on the roof is that you're no longer limited to um however much weight the roof of a particular building can support so these films weigh next to nothing compared to that, and that's uh, opens another range of applications as well.
1: I think you were saying in your hometown in Arizona, or well, in Arizona generally, the rooftops aren't particularly well done structurally. So
2: yeah, yeah, that's right. So if you live in an arid climate where you're not expecting to have to be able to support a lot of snowfall in the uh, winter months your roof might not even be designed to hold the weight of a solar module or an array of solar modules. So if you could then instead put something much lighter on, that would solve that problem as well.
0: So, Kira, your expertise is in research at the moment. As you said, just about to submit your PhD. <laughs> You've just been appointed the head of uh, research grants in Australia. Where would you see funding needed to be directed what, and, and what activities would you like to or, or think should be researched next?
2: For me, what would be really exciting is trying to scale up these lab-based efficiencies into actual modules themselves to see if these high-efficient materials on a small scale can also be scaled up. And of course, there's always going to be some loss in efficiency when you do that. But Mm. if we can scale this up to a usable size and retain 10% efficiency, I would like to first do that and then Mm. do time trials and put them out in the field. Lifetime lifetime. trials, you mean? yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, are there commercial partners keen at the moment to do that? It must have been happening, judging by some of the videos, where they're actually rolling them out on roofs and gluing them down.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, there are some companies, again, in, in Germany. Germany, yeah. Not here, <laughs> yes. though. Um, to my best knowledge, not here. I know CSIRO was involved in researching roll to roll processing of these a few years ago, um, and that program doesn't exist anymore at the moment but maybe because of lack of funding possibly yes probably Mm
1: -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. Mm, that's a shame isn't it but that often happens doesn't it that we get to a point where we develop it to the point where it has to be shown to be commercially viable and then the whole thing goes offshore and we lose all the benefits
2: yeah exactly
0: one final question a bit off topic but um i was at a a forum organized by Light of Footprints the other night, and one of the panel, panelists was Joelle Gerges, and she's a climate scientist. She's written a book on, called The Sunburn Country. She claims she's withdrawn and introverted, and she's trying to get out there and do this uh, science communication. You said you're keen to get into science communication?
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love talking about this. Um, I think it's so important to spread the word on all the really exciting technologies that are being developed and yeah, so I really,
1: really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you this morning. Well, you're doing mm. a
0: great job of it.
1: <laughs> mm, yeah, thanks very much, Kira. Yep.
2: Thank
1: and you so much. Where would people find out a little bit more about this?
2: So there are a couple of websites. Heliotech in Germany is probably the one that I would point people to. They're a company commercializing this technology. That's probably a okay. good starting point.
1: Correct. So just Google Heliotech. Yes, with a K. Set, <laughs> with a K at the end. Thanks again, Kira, for joining us. Thank you. We're talking about the latest in OPVs, organic photovoltaics, with Kira Rundle, who's a PhD student at Monash University. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios at 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, you can go to bze.org.au and click on Podcasts. If you enjoy the show and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week.
2: Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more